we are showing evidence for psychic functioning, right? Regardless of afterlife stuff, right? There's evidence for some type of psychic functioning. That is in and of itself incredible because it speaks to this entire new way of thinking about reality, right? It's, it thinks about, it, it opens us up to this whole possibility of this non-materialist based reality that we're connected in ways that materialist reality can't even begin to touch, that we maintain these relationships through space and time. That to me is just so incredibly profound and amazing. And, and I don't want to say like, what the fuck, like surprising what the fuck, but because I'm not easily surprised, but satisfied. That's amazing. Like that's really fucking cool that that level of connections can exist in our lifetimes when we're separated in space and time and even separated through through death. I think that is a, a profound finding from my perspective. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciencey Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is and share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. Club Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families, as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash 
Club Care Programs for a complete list of programs and activities. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hi, I'm Mark Pacuzzi. I'm the executive director of the Winbridge Research Center. Hi, Mark. So today, as he just said, I have Mark Pacuzzi on, and this is a very exciting kind of emotional guest for me because I found Winbridge very, very early on in my research. It was one of the key things in the darkest days of my grief that gave me hope that there really actually could be something beyond material brain consciousness. And Mark can introduce himself much better than I can. So take it away, Mark. Thanks, Liz. It's good to see you. Uh, let's see. So I'm Mark Pacuzzi. I'm the executive director and co-founder of the Winbridge Research Center. We're located in Tucson, Arizona, and we're a nonprofit organization that aims to alleviate suffering around dying, death, and what comes next through scientific research and education. I should also say that I co-founded the center with my wife and research partner, Dr. Julie Beischel, who's the center's director of research. And our main area of research right now deals with mediums and mediumship and after-death communication experiences. And uh, then we take all those findings that we get from that research and we make them available to everyone for free on our website as open access materials. This research protocol is incredibly complicated and we have free fact sheets that talk about it on our website at winbridge.org. Uh, we have educational videos, then, but I really recommend if you're interested in the details of this protocol to please read the papers because anything I'm going to talk about here is going to be very high level and I'm going to leave a lot of detail out. And when I, whenever I do that, the skeptic in the group or the denier in the group or the person that's on the fences go, wait, what about this? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do that too. But that's on page 36 of this protocol. And I didn't include it in this talk. So I'm always a little nervous when I paraphrase this research because it is really complicated and really specific. So everyone take this as a very surface intro. And if it helps, it took me six years of delving in <laughs> to this to finally be like, yeah, I really finally think it's genuine, all of it. So this is an intro. So one of the things that just 
amazed me when I found Winbridge early on was you guys are doing blinded studies on mediums and they're also peer reviewed on psychic mediums. So can you tell us first of all about one of those studies, one that just blew your mind with the results? Yeah. So uh, we've, we've been doing a lot of research on mediums over the years. And so Julie's the driving force, the driving science force behind the research that we do at the Wimbledon Research Center. But we also have a, a bunch of collaborators. We work with a whole pile of people from all over the world on various projects. So probably the sort of the foundational research or the first sort of interesting bits that we worked on was looking at the accuracy of medium statements, right? So can mediums actually report accurate and specific information about a dead person, what we call a discarnate or a deceased loved one, DLO. So I may use all those terms interchangeably. Uh, so, so can a medium report accurate and specific information about a deceased loved one for, for a sitter? That's actually a really difficult question to ask properly. And so uh, through a number of iterations and replications, the, the results of that research is yes, it seems that under tightly controlled laboratory conditions, mediums are able to do that. Uh, Julie's developed a protocol over the years that accounts for things like, you know, uh, generalization of statements, information leakage, cold reading, uh, radar bias, and other, uh, you know, nerdy science terms. But it's it's been referred to by some as the gold standard of of uh, what we call anomalous information reception or AIR research. First of all, I love a lot of the terms you use because they sound so grounded and sciencey. And well, there, we try to be, you know, we try to be a little like we want to be specific but neutral, right? So, so thanks, but it's it's not about trying to sound sciencey. It's about trying to accurately describe the phenomena and people's experiences. I guess that's what, what I really like, the seriousness of it, because early on I'd see words like angels in certain readings, and I just couldn't take that seriously. And I would get emotional reactions of, oh my God, this must all be bullshit. And then when I saw words like discarded, and I was able to take it seriously and, you know, not to knock anyone's beliefs or, you know, what people might be comfortable with, but just someone as skeptical as me in really dark days. I found it very grounding. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a lot of this stuff is really outside people's comfort zones in general, and then they need to find the, the sort of framework or languaging that they can attach themselves to. Right. So for some people, that's going to be angels and guides and, and spirit and things like that. For other people, it's going to be discarnates and double blind and triple blind and, you know, those, those kinds of terms. And yeah, you know, not everything can be all things to all people. So now I'm going to go back to what you said in the beginning and kind of break it down a little. So you said you listed all the things that your studies account for. So I'm going to break it down first. Let's start with cold reading. And just if anyone doesn't know, cold reading is when a medium will look at someone and assess them and give them information based on how they look, such as age or how they're dressed. I mean, maybe Mark can explain it a little better, but it's what I assumed one of the ways that all mediums did readings. So how do you, first of all, eliminate for cold reading? So cold reading is this idea that mediums just start saying random stuff and then they see how the sitter reacts 
to that stuff. So they'll be like, oh, I got an A name, a B, whatever, right? And, and again, I want to talk, I want to I be really clear here. When we're talking about this, we're not talking about genuine mediums. We're talking about fraudulent mediums, right? Because a legitimate medium won't have to go through this process. They will have a process that looks a lot different. So we're trying to control for the things that many people accuse mediums, mediums of doing, especially fraudulent mediums. So they'll throw out these general statements and they'll see how the, the sitter reacts. We get around that, or one of the ways we get around that is through the use of what we call a proxy sitter. So in a normal mediumship reading, there's the medium, there's the sitter who, uh, who has hired the medium or wants to interact with the medium, and then there's the invited discarnate, the, the deceased loved one that the sitter wants to make contact with, and the medium receives messages and conveys messages to the, to the, to the sitter too. So what we do is we have a medium on a phone, and we have not the actual sitter, but someone sitting in the sitter's place called a proxy sitter. And the only information that that proxy sitter knows about the discarnate is the discarnate's first name. So for example, Kathy. And from that, you can generally, you might be able to, to um, generalize out to gender. So ge basically gender and first name. But beyond that, the proxy sitter knows nothing else about the sitter themselves or the discarnate. So we asked the medium, uh, we'd like to do a, a, a reading for Kathy today, and we're going to ask you a series of specific questions. We're going to want to know what Kathy looked like, what her personality was like, what were her hobbies, and what was her cause of death. And the medium needs to provide specific information about each one of those categories. And so there's no feedback. There's no way for the sitter, the medium to determine any of those particular features. There's a lot of people that say, oh, they get the, the sitter's first name or they get the, the, the discarnate's first name. So they clearly know everything there is to know about the deceased person. And I've yet to see anyone come up and go, oh, yes, if you give me the first name of someone, I'll be able to accurately describe better than chance all of these aspects of that particular individual. And then finally, the thing we do is one of the things we're really interested in this is this idea of what we call discarnate motivation, right? So why the hell would a meet would a discarnate want to talk to this proxy sitter that they have no connection to unless they could actually send some sort of meaningful message back to the sitter? So then we leave in a short open-ended period at the end where the medium can provide any messages uh, for the sitter that they would like. So that's how we kind of control for this information leakage and all this kind of stuff. Well, that also was going to answer the second thing, which is the hot reading. How do people not Google? You know, that's an example of hot reading, which means they find out and research information. So how often do the proxies, deceased loved ones, come in during that time? None. That's never, that's never happened. And why do you think that is? Uh, we pick our proxies very carefully. We haven't talked about things like pairing and decoy reading and all that kind of stuff, right? So we got to we gotta hit on that before I talk about results. So you mentioned decoy. So can you explain decoys? Oh, sure. The high end of the way this, this protocol works is we have, a, we have a medium and we ask them to do a reading for two sitters, right? So sitter A and sitter B. 
But again, the only thing the medium knows is the first name of sitter A and the first name of sitter B. We then take those readings, which are done over the phone and audio recorded, and we transcribe them. And then those transcripts are given to a different investigator. The, the readings are de-identified. And so when that second investigator gets those readings, he or she doesn't know which reading goes to which sitter. So they're randomly ordered, and then they're given, sitter A is given the readings for discarnate A and B, and the, the other sitter is given the readings for discarnate A and B, and they're not told which is which. And then an, in addition to that, that investigator, the second investigator, doesn't know anything about the discarnates. The only, thing, the only information they have is who should get the, these two readings. That's it. So that information sent out to the sitters and the sitters then score those readings in a number of ways. We do what's called item by item scoring. And then we do a forced choice thing at the end where people are, have to pick which reading that they think is theirs. And then when we get all those data back, what we find is that at a rate that's higher than statistically predictable by chance, sitters pick their own readings. And that really tell me if I'm right, eliminates for gen a combination of general information, you know, which would be like your grandmother baked. I mean, most people's grandmothers baked. I mean, not that she didn't, but it would eliminate for just general as well as sitters bias wanting to either overly score accurately or based on their desires or maybe underscore based on their set beliefs. Yeah, that, that's true. That's We call that Raider bias. So by doing the scoring system that way, we, we do account for Raider bias. A, a sitter that maybe may tend to score everything high will score both of those things high and, and, and so that sort of thing. So yeah, we do control for that. Why is it important that the proxy know nothing about the discarnate? Well, we don't want the proxy to accidentally give away any information to the sitter, or sorry, to the to the medium during the reading. So, if a medium were to say something like, "I don't know, was she green? Was she, did she have red hair?" and the proxy knows that information, they may pause. They may say, "Oh, yeah." They may go, hmm, or, "Or or nothing." Right? Like it, it it takes the burden off the proxy. So, if they don't have any information, there's no way they can intentionally or unintentionally leak information to the uh, to the medium. Right. And I've even seen sometimes people in readings be extreme where they give a lot of information. You know, someone was like, did she have red hair? Oh, no, it was brown. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's and again, this is this is one of the fundamental differences between doing readings in the lab and then how readings take place in the wild. So people, when they uh, when they get a mediumship reading, when they hire a medium and they go to a mediumship reading or they have one on the phone or whatever, there are other things that they should consider. But in the lab, which is where we primarily work, we, we try to control for all that stuff through what we call blinding or masking, the compartmentalization of various kinds of information. There's actually three different investigators involved in this process, and each one of them is responsible for very specific pieces of information and how that information is moved from one investigator to the other is also tightly controlled and very specific. So it's funny you said the difference when you get a medium reading in real life versus lab. I know I think mediums early on wanted to kill me because I read all your protocols to do it. And I would sit and be like, 
get red like you're in a lab, get red like you're in a lab. And one even yelled at me, they're like, you're in the end when they asked me a little about my story. And I said, I'm a skeptic. I've been reading Winbridge nonstop. They're like, oh, yeah, reading you is like reading a scientist. You give nothing. And I was like, yes, that's good. That's good. So if you're skeptical, follow that. You know, I mean, some people need more of the emotional engagement. So the three levels, can you explain that a little more, what you mean by that and why? Sure. So, so experimenter one, what we call experimenter one, their job is to interact with the sitters. So they recruit the sitters into the system. They consent them through uh, an IRB approved ethics review process so that sitters understand what experiment they're going to be in, how the experiment's going to work, all that kind of stuff. And then they collect all that information and they also collect information about the discarnate. So experimenter one knows a good amount of information about the sitters and the discarnates. And a lot of that, all that information is ultimately provided to the first experimenter through an online survey form that we collect. During these experiments, when we were doing this, we literally had hundreds of participants in these studies. So we had a very, very large database of sitters and and, uh, discarnates. And people are like, oh, the, the experimenter one just memorized all the... No, you're you're burning through hundreds of people. You're talking to people on the phone. You're, it's really improbable that somehow uh, a particular a sitter discarnate pair is remembered in any kind of detail by experimenter one. It's just improbable. It's beyond normal. So anyway, there's this database now that exists of these sitter pairs. So using specialized software that we wrote, sitter one then runs an algorithm that randomly selects the first sitter and their discarnate and then pairs to their second discarnate. So we, we pick two discarnates that are uh, dissimilar in a lot of ways, right? Because we don't, if we're, if we're going to compare two readings, we need there to be a difference, right? So if we did two readings of a white male who died in the sixties of a heart attack, those readings are going to look very similar, right? So maybe we want someone who was younger or someone who was older or had different physical description or different cause of death, right? So all this is done programmatically. And But I'm going to jump in with one question. You always stick with the same gender, right? Yeah, we always gender match them because we're giving names when it's time to, to, to score the setting. If we had different genders, it would, it would be weird. That would be easy to determine, even if we de-identified them. So then once we have a sitter pair, right? Experimenter one contacts experimenter two and experimenter two is the proxy sitter. And the only information that experimenter one sends to experimenter two is this is group A. Do a reading for Karen, do a reading for Susan. That's it. And that information is sent via email and it's timestamped and all that stuff. And it's received by the proxy sitter, experimenter two, and that's all the information they have. And then they contact a medium randomly selected from a list based on availability and all that kind of stuff. And then they run these two sessions with the medium and they say, okay, we're going to do reading one. It's going to be for this person. We're going to do reading two. It's going to be for this person. And then those readings are done, transcribed, and then they're sent. And then just the readings no information about the sitter, no information about the discarded names are sent to the final investigator who contacts investigator one again and says, I now have group one in my possession. Where do they go? And then experimenter one says, oh, 
send them to these two email addresses. And then that information gets, those packages get mailed out to those two sitters, and then they score them and return them back to the third investigator when they're done. That's, it's all pretty amazing. It's really, really complicated. Uh, there's a video and a book and a thing like, go watch the videos, go, it's, it's, there's a lot of moving parts to this, uh, to this protocol. A big question is the difference between psychic reading and medium reading. And if anyone doesn't know this, psychic is when a medium is reading your mind. I know some people will say, how do I know psychic's not just reading my mind? Well, I don't think the word just should be applied to that because that's pretty amazing and shows that consciousness is behaving non-locally still, but it's not showing anything about survival of life after death. So people often wonder if you're thinking about your loved one, how do you know the medium is actually communicating with them and not reading you psychically? And I know you guys are careful to test for that. And if so, how? Well, it's, um, it's an ongoing process. So it's, it's actually a different kind of experiment. So in the first experiment, right, we showed that mediums can receive accurate and specific information about the deceased, but it doesn't tell us where that information comes from, right? Like you said, it could be coming from psychic information from the living person, from the sitter or some other source, or it could be coming from the discarnate in form of, a, of communication. So that became uh, an, another research program to try to determine the source of that information. So the first research program is called information. The second is called operation. And our third is called application. And we'll talk, we'll talk about that later. But as part of the operations arm, we, we became really interested in understanding the source of this information. And what's cool is that back in the Victorian days, when mediums would give readings, uh, many of them would go into full trance and they, they wouldn't really have a strong recollection of their experience after the reading was over. So a lot of the research was focused on what happened during the, what the information was, what happened if there were physical effects, like during the actual reading. So at some point with modern American secular mediums, that kind of changed. And this, this need to go into this deep trance state doesn't seem to exist anymore. And what that allowed us to do was to ask questions of the medium about their actual experience during the actual reading. And so what that's called is phenomenology, right? Uh, and that's the study of how people experience a thing, basically. It's not a great definition, but it'll, 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 it'll suffice for the moment. And so we became interested in what it was like for a medium to experience a mediumship reading. So we ran a bunch of studies around that and we looked at various forms of what that experience is. And there's ways to capture and document people's phenomenology using various instruments, uh, uh, survey study, survey questionnaires and things like that. And at some point we, when we were ready, we sat down and we said, okay, we're going to run a study where we're going to have mediums do readings for, with discarnates. We're going to ask them to communicate with a discarnate. And then for, for a sitter, and then we're going to have them do psychic readings for the living. And we're not going to tell them which, which reading is which. We're going to use the exact same AIR protocol that I talked about earlier. So the only thing that... You're not going to tell who which is which. Sorry, sorry we're, not, we're not going to tell the, the mediums which is which. We're not going to tell them if they're, uh, they're doing a reading for a living person or a reading for a dead person. 
And uh, and we use the same AIR protocol. They only get the, the the mediums only get a first. Wait, how do they know? You mean you don't tell them in advance? They come in and you say. Well, you don't tell them ever. Oh, you don't. T- oh, I got it. You say you're reading a person, and you don't let them know whether they're just deceased or living. The the mediums do know that at the beginning of the study because we have to disclose what we're doing to them. During this study, you will be asked to perform multiple readings. Some of those readings will be for a dead people. Some of those readings will be for a living person. We weren't, we're not going to tell you which is which is which at any given time. So they're like, okay, great. So then they go through and they do the readings. And then after the readings are over, after each reading is over, we collect their phenomenology using an instrument called the Phenomenology of Consciousness Inventory, or PCI. Um, it was developed by a guy named Ron Pakala, who we've worked with. Uh, and when we look at those data, what we find is that the mediums can, in fact, tell the difference between a psychic reading and a mediumship reading. It feels different to them. It's a different kind of experience. So based on this AIR data and the data from the experiential, the the phenomenology data, we're coming down on the side that when a medium gives a reading, they are getting that information from a deceased person and not from another another non-local source. So the mediums were able to tell in the end which were discarnate and which were living. We did ask the mediums, do you think this you just did a reading for a dead person or did you oh, did you think you did a reading for a living person? And then they would give us their guess. And they were able to predict that at a at an accuracy rate that was higher than chance. And but on top of that, just looking at their experience, and this PCI instrument is huge. It, it measures 26 different dimensions of um, experience. And when you look at all these huge surveys that they completed across all these readings and all these different mediums, the trend is the, the, the mediumship experience is phenomenologically different than a psychic reading experience. And what would be an example uh, that that the machine would measure one thing. Well, it's not a machine. It's a, it's a sorry. When I say instrument, I'm I'm a nerd, and that means we're talking about a a, a survey, uh, like a like a, a paper and pencil survey. Oh. those are called instruments. Oh, I didn't know that. I was um, picturing something okay. like someone hooked up to it, and they were going to have different. No, no, no. It, no. Like We've done EEG studies. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's a little nerdy in the technology in the terminology. But yeah, so the survey that they complete called the PCI. So so probably the biggest thing that was interesting between, the biggest finding that was interesting between discarnate readings and uh, psychic readings for the living is that the mediums reported feeling higher levels of love. So they felt more love during a discarnate reading than they did during a, a medium, uh, a psychic reading for a living person. And, uh, and again, this is all under blinded conditions. We've presented on these data a little bit, but we actually have a full paper in press right now that we're hoping will be published in the next month or so that goes through this protocol in mind-numbing detail with all of our co-authors and, and co-researchers that were on this project. Yeah. And if you're fascinated with this stuff, it's far from mind-numbing. It's really, if you're, it's so life-changing. It's the most, I think, the most amazing stuff that's ever people know what I think about this so so you have you don't just work with any mediums right yeah we decided early on that if we're going to study a specific type of phenomena we needed to work with people that could actually 
do the phenomena, right? So if we want to know how Olympic swimmers, how fast they can go, you don't go down to the local pool and say like, hey, kids, how fast can you swim, right? You you go to the Olympic trials and you get the best swimmers in the world and you you work with them. So that was our hope in, in working with mediums to understand mediumship, the phenomena of mediumship and the processes of mediumship. So early on, we, we set up a program where we pre-screened mediums to become part of our research team. And those mediums are called Winbridge Certified Research Mediums. And I'm stressing the word research here because their, their certification is specifically designed so that they are really, really good research participants. They understand protocol. They understand they're science-minded. They follow directions. They can, they do, they can do all the thing, all the really incredibly demanding things that we ask of them during these various experiments that we run that range from tell us your experience to let us test your accuracy to we're going to draw a lot of blood to we're going to you know, put you up in, or hook you up to an EEG and make you do a bunch of stuff. So these mediums do jump through a lot of hoops for us for the research. But you mentioned you took mediums' blood. Did you find anything different in their blood? No, no, we we didn't. We did. We did all this whole hematology study where we had mediumship readings and control readings, and we drew all this blood out of them. And ultimately, what we didn't find any any hematological changes between a control. Or on a psychic reading. Uh, the reason why we're interested in this is because a lot of mediums have a higher disease burden than non-mediums in their age and demographic class. So we were wondering what toll a mediumship reading took on, on people's health. And looking at changes in blood, uh, various blood factors was one way we were trying to do that. We sort of looked at things like heart rate variability and, and temperature and all that kind of stuff. And we didn't, we didn't see anything that was significant between the two reading states, but our mediums are pretty experienced and younger mediums may have different results. It's a negative results study, but I, I still think it's interesting, but it's certainly not a definitive study. I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw out this entire line of inquiry just because we ran this one thing and we didn't find we didn't find results, and to become to become part of the Wimbridge Certified Research Medium team, they had to perform a number of different kinds of readings. They had to go through various kinds of trainings, fill out personality surveys, have interviews, and all that kind of. It's a very extensive process. It takes months to complete. And I should stress that we are no longer doing that. We have our team, and we're no longer certifying medium research mediums. And I assume this group that not everyone passed and this group was significantly more accurate than the average medium, I would guess. Um, you can't say that. Um, what you can say is that we set up a criteria for success and that the mediums that are in the program met that criteria for success. Got it. Okay. Right. Cause we, cause we can't, we can't measure every medium and then say, Oh, these were, these people were significantly better than every other medium that's ever been out there, right? And the other, so here's the thing about mediumship certification and testing that, that makes it really tricky. And I also want to stress here that just because someone went through our, our program and didn't get accepted or didn't meet the test criteria, it doesn't mean they're a bad medium. It just means that on that particular day with that sitter and that discarnate, things didn't work, Right. A mediumship reading, as I mentioned before, is this is this communication interaction between a sitter, a discarnate, and a medium. 
And all those things need to work together, right? The sitter needs to be in a good place to be able to accurately assess the quality of the reading. The sitter has to have a good relationship with the discarnate. And otherwise, the discarnate may not show up or may provide information that isn't what the sitter expects. The sitter and the medium kind of need to get along. Now, we have blinding in our experiments, including phone readings and, and we're, uh, for the test, for the, for the certification process. So there isn't a lot of interaction between sitter and medium. But again, all these things need to work together. And when you're running through people through a protocol like this on a, on a conveyor belt at speed, right? If that sitter medium discarnate pair doesn't work out, it has nothing to do with the medium's ability, right? There's many other things, factors that can affect a mediumship reading. So unfortunately, we, don't, we didn't have the time and resources to just continually retest people. So it, we, they went through the process. If they did great, we moved them on. If they didn't, sorry, we're going on to the next medium, right? So it's a, it was really a conveyor belt of trying to get the best mediums we could as quickly as possible, given the amount of limited time and resources that all these kinds of research projects have. The main our main area today has been mediums and mediumship and accuracy and phenomenology. The other area that we study with mediums is uh, application. So one of the big things we're interested in is how mediums and mediumship readings could be developed or deployed as a potential therapeutic infer, uh, intervention for people who are experiencing traumatic grief, right? And maybe this is something you could speak to, right? Because you found your mediumship reading to be really transformative. Right? You said you were in a really dark place because of your grief, and then mediumship moved you out of that place. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, (laughs) open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. As I'm sure you've heard, the Supreme Court in the United States just overturned Roe v. Wade, which protects a woman's right to have an abortion if she chooses. Now it's illegal in some of our states. If anyone is looking to obtain an abortion and you live in a state where it's illegal, you can check the following sites. I suggest using a VPN, virtual private network, which hides your identity on your computer or phone. These are the sites, womenonwaves.org, womenonweb.org, aidaccess.org, PlanCPills.org, WholeWomansHealth.com, AbortionFunds.org, and of course, Planned Parenthood. I linked all of them on our Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore, and they're saved in our stories. 
These are also great places to donate and see if they need any help. Definitely. Mediumship was a key part of it. It wasn't the only thing. I wouldn't have moved out of it without the science and all of it all together, but it was transformative too, because you can read every lab result in the world and you can still think, you know, maybe there's somebody lying. Like I even early on, Mark, you'll probably find this pretty funny. I wondered if there was like one person I was like, what if Julie Beichel and Laura and Joe and all of them are actually one person and these are all stock photos and they're making this up to sell books, you know, early on. So I Googled further. Obviously, now I know that's not the case. So if you're that level of skeptical, you know, you go in and this person in front of you is literally doing this and you cannot explain it away. You can't come up with any other theory. Yeah. So, so a lot of people experience that a lot of people have mediumship readings that they find really transformative. And it seems, again, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I'm not saying if you're experiencing grief, you should run out and get a mediumship reading. We don't know enough about it. We know that not everyone has a positive experience with a medium, but the data from the surveys that we've run seem to indicate that for some people, this can be a really powerful and transformative experience. And we're, we're researching that more. We're trying to do more uh, clinical research in that area to see what's the best way to integrate mediumship into a, a grief counseling or grief support situation. So I'd always associated Winbridge with just mediumship, but from what I understand, you're getting into other aspects of afterlife, such as after-death communication, ADCs. I'd love to hear about that. Sure. Yeah. So our main focus has been mediumship, but mediumship is just one piece of what are called after-death communication experiences. There's there's several different types, and they all seem to have various... They all. Uh, have different effects on people who experience them. And so one of the things we're interested in right now is spontaneous after-death communication experiences. So these are things like uh, dream visitations or other types of visitations where people are a sense of presence or things like that. So, so we started a project about a year ago now, maybe a little longer, called Audrey's Project. It's named after my mom who passed away not long ago. So it was inspired by this incredibly powerful contact dream that I had with my mom. And as I came out of that experience, it was really profound. And I ended up sharing the story with my family and they were moved by it and with some other people. And, but I didn't, I didn't feel like just telling the story was enough. And so I sat down and I quickly I had written the dream down and I started editing together videos of the experience. So I used all this stock footage and stock imagery and I, I, I put together a narration and I made this short video experience that described the after-death communication dream that I had with my mother. And after much soul searching and much encouragement and much back and forth, I decided to share that publicly. And the response was really overwhelming. And positive in a positive way. There, you know, there's, this is a controversial topic. There's, it brings out all types, but over, overall, people were found the, the experience to be really interesting and moving. And so we actively have begun starting collecting other people's after death communication experiences 
And we're working on ways either internally or with artists externally to visualize those, to create this library of visual ADC experiences that people can watch and interact with and learn from. And there's there's actually an interesting body of peer-reviewed research that shows that when people interact with other people's stories or hear other people's stories, they can actually find it healing. So Audrey's Project is sort of the first step in moving in that direction. In addition to the Audrey's Project we're working on, we recently received a grant to help us look at animals in the afterlife. So non-human animals in the afterlife. And uh, we're calling it the Animal Survival Project or A-N-S-U-R or Answer Project. And one of the first things that, that kind of came up with this was we, we noticed that there were some stories of animal communication or animal contact, deceased animal contact in the Audrey Project uh, submissions in the in the ADC descriptions. So one of the first ones that we looked at and we actually visualized was the story of a horse who had passed away. And the horse's name was Cole. It was this black horse. And the person was sitting in the stable and they were working in the stable. It had been Cole had been gone for some time and and they were they were really grieving the loss of their their friend. And the person looks down the stable across that down it was in the barn they see Cole in their in their stable and she runs over. And by the time she gets over there, the uh, Cole has disappeared. And she's like, oh my God, this is an amazing experience. It was really profound to see him. But now I'm also kind of sad that that experience is over. And she goes to bed that night and then she reports having a really, really profound after-death communication dream with Cole. And Cole sends her a message saying, I'm okay. Everything's fine you know, you're loved and you're missed. And, and she's, and she found that whole experience to be incredibly healing at the end. And she thanked us for giving her the opportunity to share that. And that's, that's a video that's, that's available online. It's certainly, it's on our YouTube, on the Wimbridge Research Center YouTube page. So anyway, we're starting to collect more of these animal and the afterlife stories as well through this, through our answer project. And we're really excited about it. And uh, if people are interested in participating, we haven't launched open submission yet. But when we do that, people can learn about that by joining our email list at our website, winbridge.org. I have a couple amazing ones. I would love to hear your story. Please tell me. I'd say one of my most amazing. So I lost my cat Simba a couple of years ago and she was my baby at her since I was a kid. We were so close. And so early one morning when you're in the hypnagogic state, I guess they say, or I was either, I can't remember if I was going to bed or just waking up or just taking a nap. But regardless, I really felt her presence there and really strong and, you know, kind of felt like I was communicating with her and saying, I love you. And then I said, okay, Simba, I absolutely love you. And you know, I'm skeptical. If you're really here, I need more evidence. So I wake up the next morning to a message from a medium I'm friends with who said, I had a dream with you and a cat. And she described my cat. And it's a medium I trust, to be honest. So I sent a photo. And because she was like, I forget which if it was like thinner than that photo or fatter. And I was, she, I think she said a little thinner. And I sent an older photo, not like previous older, but the cat much older. And it might have been the other way around. But where but she said, Oh, yes, yes, that's the exact cat I dreamt of. And I, she described some of its personality and I was like, that's amazing. And I had never told this medium anything about my cat. I hadn't posted on social where the mediums could see, you know, even ones I'm friends with, 
I kind of, you know, try to keep a lot of stuff from them because I like getting evidence. So that was pretty amazing. And it was literally the next morning. Oh, wow. So thank you for sharing it. I'm so sorry about your loss. That's, it's tough. Um, it's tough. You know, people that haven't lost a companion animal will often go, well, it's just a dog or it's just a cat. And like, no, that's, that's the loss of a, of an animal like that in some cases can even be pr- more profound and grief inducing than the loss of a, a, a human loved one. There's a fair amount of literature in the mainstream literature, the grief literature uh, about, about that. So we're very excited about this, this project. I think, um, I think we're going to be able to help a lot of people as we learn more about this phenomena. And we're treating Audrey's project more as an education and art project because we're not testing any specific hypothesis at this point. We're simply collecting these stories, visualizing them, and then releasing them out into the world to see how people respond to them. Are there any you heard of that you can share that are exceptionally evidential or are they more just profound and meaningful? I I think they're all personally meaningful. I'm not comfortable sharing anything at the moment because there's a process by which we release those, but we're not critically analyzing them because again, it's, it's more of this education piece. So we're not like going, oh, you had this experience and it was precognitive and now you need to prove to us that that precognitive information was accurate. Blah, like we're not not drilling in on people like that. That's there's there's a time and a place for that kind of research. This isn't it. And this isn't that population. That may happen in the future. But right now we're just interested in understanding the prevalence, uh, what the sort of the scope of these experiences are, what they look like, and get them in the hands of other people in a way that that's engaging and digestible and and inspi- hopefully inspiring. Right to, to let other people know that these experiences aren't odd and weird and uh, necessary, like part of some pathology, right? So, so normalizing these experiences is, is a very high priority for us. And I have a question, the annoying question that I think annoys all of us. Now, the I've read the studies, they're amazing and they're peer reviewed and they're just very well done. So why is mainstream science still scoffing at this and dismissive of this? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I um, just had a kind of a weird interaction with a set of skeptics. And uh, this is a really complex topic. We should just do a show on this. I would love to do an episode on that if you have the time. Yeah, we could totally come back to this and revisit this. But um, sort of my my position is both sympathetic towards mainstream science and annoyed at mainstream science. I'm sympathetic towards mainstream science because one of the goals of science is to understand and explain how things work. And the bottom line is, despite all the stuff that we talk about and all things we know, we don't know how mediumship works. We don't know how the afterlife works, right? We can't point to something and go, here's the mechanism of action. Here's how this is happening, right? And that makes mainstream materialist scientists rightfully skeptical, right? However, the other piece of that is that those the, main, the mainstream paradigm is based on this idea of materialism, And what we're learning more and more is that materialism is actually may not be a complete model to view 
reality through. There are there there are cracks forming around the edges of materialism, especially in the areas of consciousness and quantum physics and and other and other things that don't fit comfortably within the materialist model. And so all of our work is based on this non-materialist model. And if you accept a non-materialist model of the world, everything here fits very comfortably and makes a lot of sense. So at some point, hopefully, they will be able to bridge the gap between this non-materialist model and this materialist model, and more mainstream scientists will feel comfortable even entertaining some of these ideas. But at this point, to accept any of these data means a rejection of the fundamental principles on which all of their existing research is founded, right? And there, I, you know, we could talk about all the motivation behind why that might be a good reason to reject data that doesn't sit comfortably with you. But that's, a, I think, that's a bigger conversation. So I am sympathetic to the fact that mainstream science has this worldview. I believe our worldview is more comprehensive and is it is the future. It's the way science is going to end up working in the future. We're just jumping ahead. We're going to say, you know what, we're not going to be bound by a bigger theory. We're going to follow the data. We're going to we're going to look at people's experiences. We're going to try to help people with this with what we can. I always have a weird response when I hear the materialist mindset or that word because I'm like I've always considered myself a materialist since starting to study this. But then I was like, you know, survival of consciousness is not exclusive to materialist mindset in the sense that if eventually the way we've now learned about radio waves and, you know, cloud, I mean, those factually exist. If they find consciousness that is not created by a material brain is actually an, you know, I'm just pulling this like a little out of my ass is not literally saying it's this, but like a certain electron electric charge rate, you know, that continually never dies and re-engages with the big bang and big crunch and gets downloaded by microtubulars. I think I microtubules. I know I mispronounced that a little bit, but that is one theory that a part of the brain can possibly could download this discarnate consciousness. I mean, that literally is materialist. So I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a um, a physicist or a quantum physicist. Uh, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk too big on theory. It's a little above my pay grade, honestly. And um, there are there are much smarter people spending a lot more time and money trying to bridge that gap than I am. For me, it just seems that it's naive and premature to simply throw out a whole pile of data whether it's about psychic functioning or whether it's about afterlife experiences or mediums, simply because it doesn't fit comfortably into a, into a, a, a current paradigm, right? So I'm going to let those people argue that stuff and I'm going to move forward. You know, we're going to move forward with our work and see what we can learn, how we can help people, uh, how can we alleviate, alleviate suffering? How can we mitigate grief? How can we make the world a slightly better place at the end of the day, which is ultimately our goal? You know, and there's, and it's interesting, like skeptics are always like, oh, you're just doing this because blah, and you're not skeptical enough and yada, yada, yada. I'm going to go a bit out of limb here. The interesting thing about us and our work is that unlike a skeptic, we can change our minds. 
right? People are always like, oh, you're just doing this for the money. Here's the fucked up there. The, the reality is I get paid either way, right? I, if I run a mediumship study, I get paid for running the study. The outcome doesn't matter. I still get paid, right? I still write a paper. I still could write a book. I could still go on podcasts. I just talk about different data, right? It's not a big deal, right? Then that's the thing. As scientists, at least for us, we're not overly attached to the outcome. Sure, it's wonderful when we have a hypothesis and we think about it and it plays out and it displays itself scientifically and then other people can replicate it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, I'm not saying that doesn't suck. But again, like that's not our end game, right? Our end game is to find the answer to the question, right? And then know, find, figure out where that answer leads us next. But if you're a skeptic and you're like, no, I can't accept this because of whatever reason, you, you've boxed yourself into a corner, right? You, you can't go back and say, oh, well, maybe I'm going to accept this weird paradigm of survival and all this stuff because this protocol makes sense and these data make sense, but I'm going to have to reject my entire career of publications and peer-reviewed research and grants because that stuff is no longer fitting comfortably into this new worldview. I was just going to say, you're just doing this for the money argument always strikes me as a little absurd with this. I mean, we're both comfortable, but I don't, you know, if you're going to just sell out ethics and lie and deceive to make money, you're probably going to do something that could make, I mean, this just doesn't make a ton of money. There's ways to make, like others are making like eight figures a year, which, you know, it's a lot of people, there's plenty of other ways if you're just going to go sell out. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I, I would even push back on the idea of comfortably. It's, it's a struggle sometimes to, to get this work done. And, you know, and we've been lucky. We've been really fortunate. We have wonderful donors and we have wonderful people that support us. But, you know, there's tons more work we'd love to do and all that kind of stuff. But whatever. I'm not going to, I'm not here to bitch about money. But what I'm, but the point, but you're right, right? And the other thing too is how do you think I'd make more money saying, you know, all of our results don't show that this is a thing and uh, I can publish books and be part of that whole skeptic parapsychologist that finds no evidence for parapsychology. I make so much more money on this. I mean, no offense to your podcast, but I would be on Dr. Phil and, and, you know, uh, whoever else is big now that people watch on television, right? Or you'd either say that or you'd present this all in an absurd way, like 100%, I discovered afterlife, I know it, and you would get a whole other group. You would speak in a much less honest tone, you know, and that would make a lot more money. Yeah. It seems this in-between honest way you and I both do, while I feel it's really helping and the most interested, I mean, it's probably making the least money of other choices I could make in this route. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's probably true. Of, of the paths we could have picked, like this is probably the least lucrative one. Oh, what did you do? Oh, I sold two eBooks on Amazon today and I, I got a research grant that's going to cover its own expenses. <laughs> right. I don't have a savings account. <laughs> Sorry, I, we're not on video. I just made a big sarcastic smile. <laughs> it, it's weird. It, again, I'm sympathetic to, to skeptics because I understand that they're not 100% unjustified, right? Until we come up with a mechanism, until we can answer the how, you know, this is going to, this is a tough sell for mainstream science. I think approach could be more like, okay, I believe there seems to be something here, but I don't understand it. I'm not going to talk about it rather than no, this did not happen. They're all lying. Yeah, that is a bit of a problem. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because this is 
this is sort of the downside of that level of skepticism, which is, for example, I field the majority of emails that come into the Winbridge Research Center, and it, it's fairly common for me to get an email from someone that says, oh, I read your research. I was grieving over the loss of a loved one. Your research showed me that there may be more to what's happening. I found it very comforting, but then I got online and then I read these skeptics who were saying your research isn't good and now I'm depressed and confused and I don't know what to believe. Can you help me? That was very much a big part of my journey early on and still even moments the skeptics will get to me because I'm like, you know, a lot of them are much smarter than me. I mean, some are genuine scientists. So, you know, I, I relate personally to what you just spoke about. Yeah, and I think that's that's sad, right? If you're going to make a case against the work, then be honest about the case. And, you know, it's funny, I, I often get into these arguments. Not, I try not to get into them often, but they, they spring up. Oh, this piece of your protocol is, is faulty because a medium could have, might have, possibly have done this sort of thing. Like, you have no evidence that that happened. And just because you imagine it is a possibility without data to support the accusation, you could easily have said it's the result of the flying spaghetti monster or the whatever, right? Like the Hamburglar could have come in and stolen all of our data and then spread it out to the internet. Like maybe, but there's no evidence that any of that happened and you can't prove that it did. So run your own experiment and test that hypothesis specifically. Don't fucking ridicule our shit because you've made something up in your weird fantasy world. So there's there's that piece of it. This is this idea that we can just they can just throw out criticisms without support or data. And then they they they'll nitpick again, they'll they'll nitpick these particular protocol issues, which we've gone over a hundred times and blah, 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 blah. But really, that's just that's just smoke and mirrors. Because they're not willing to just come flat out and say, I can't accept these data because they don't fit into my worldview, right? If they were just intellectually honest about their motivation, about I've been trained as a scientist, I've been taught as a materialist. I had a guy tell me just a couple of days ago, I was taught not to believe in the afterlife. So how how does the afterlife work? Oh, you were taught this right? You didn't come to it on your own. You didn't discover it. You didn't run studies and figure it out, right? This was something you you gave yourself over to authority and now you've accepted this as truth and you've based your life and career on this. And now this information is contrary to what you've been taught and integrated into your life. So just be intellectually honest and say, I can't accept, I don't accept this because I can't. It doesn't make any sense to me. And no amount of data and no amount of protocol are ever going to are ever going to satisfy me. But if they say that that's they come off as shitty scientists, right? Because scientists are supposed to be open and experiment and do all that shit, right? So so then they they shift consciously or unconsciously to nitpick or come up with these scenarios that are, you know, really irrelevant or details that don't really matter, but do nothing to like run their own experiments or do anything to, to, to add to the body of knowledge other than try to tear down what's been created and discovered. It's, it's very odd to me. Yeah, it is to me too. And 
what's interesting is I could see one saying, oh, that's not my area of expertise or one saying, I mean, unfortunately, there is a lot of absurdity around the afterlife out there. But then when they hear of a Winbridge saying, huh, from my experience, I don't believe there could be anything. I'm not going to waste my time, you know, not I don't think it's waste, but say that and investigate further. So I'm just not going to comment on this. You know, instead, they one thing I found that was sort of a turning point in my not idealizing them was I read early on Dr. Jim Tucker's book, and then I started to see what skeptics were saying about it. And I was like, oh, of course, you know, it's not real. And then all the issues they were addressing were in the book. And all of them said, of course, I didn't read it. I would never use my time that way. And obviously the kid, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, but that was addressed in the book. And every single one was like, I didn't read it, of course. Yeah, it's this funny you bring this up because, again, I I literally had a conversation just a few days ago where someone, there were two researchers and they were CCing me on this conversation. And the first researcher says, hey, I need you to read this paper and comment on it. Here's the citation. And the other researcher says, that paper is 66 pages. Can you just give me give me the, the salient details in three sentences? That is so ridiculous. That's, that's just being lazy then. Just you don't want to do the work, so don't go comment on it. So my response was, yeah, this is going to be a great conversation if you're unwilling to even read the freaking research. And then they, were, they compromised by watching a series of presentation videos that were designed for the general public and then drew their conclusions from those because reading the paper. And this is just always. Yeah. And again, like, that's cool. If you don't support it and you don't believe it and you're like, yeah, I'm a materialist. My research doesn't show this. You know, we can talk about things like, like the psychological need to protect their legacy or terror management theory, right? Which states that, you know, people are so terrified of their own death that they do anything to, to mitigate that by, by again, protecting their legacy and creating a legacy. And it helps them deal with the fact that, that they're going to die, especially people that don't believe in an afterlife, right? Because then they have not, all they have is what's, what they've created in this material world. And if things like sigh and survival even begin to hint at threatening that, of course, they're going to lash out in really weird ways. Uh, And I may be abusing terror management theory here, so I apologize, but it's an interesting topic and I'm fascinated by it. Anyway. The skeptics and mindset, because it's just something, it still scares me on my dark days. Actually, you know, I would love to talk to you about that. Do you know Greg Wheeler? I know the name. He wrote Psy Wars. Am I right? Is that the right one? Yeah, totally talk to him. He's a really interesting guy. He's super nice and um, he knows this topic really well. Craig Wheeler, check out his book. What was your belief set before starting to research all this and what got you open to researching it? Because very few people are. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. My background, so I'm not a I should I just I'm not a PhD. I'm not a classically trained scientist. Uh, I just hire them as I need to. And I married one, which was incredibly helpful. I've always had a, a, an interest in psychic phenomena ever since I was a kid, and I, I, I considered going into parapsychology when I was younger. But I decided, you know, that's a weird field to try to get into, and there's a lot between here and there. So I just I ended up going into computer science, and I have a, a degree in computer science, and I. I worked in the software industry for many years, but I always kept this interest in parapsychology alive. And probably around 2000 or so, I started doing investigations of haunted locations. And honestly, because it was sort of the easiest way to get into parapsychology, 
right? All you got, you didn't have to run participants. You didn't have to consent people. You just go someplace, check it out, collect some data, see what happens. I should also say that um, in the mid 1990s, my father passed away. And although my father was Catholic and religious, he was fairly well convinced that there wasn't an afterlife. He and I would, uh, I was with him. He, he had cancer. I was with him in his last few months. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking about various topics and this would, this would come up and, and he was pretty much convinced that uh, while it's a nice idea, he pretty, he was convinced that it was one and done. And I, I have to say that although I was raised initially Catholic, I moved away from religion pretty early on. And I also had that belief that, that there wasn't an afterlife. And I actually took a lot of comfort in this idea of annihilation right? Really? Wow. That's so rare to hear. And I actually find that encouraging because that people often say when you conclude there's afterlife, you're lying to yourself because you want it to be true so badly. Something I always try to ask myself if I'm doing. So I think that's, that adds to the validity of your evidence. You know, there's a lot of people will talk about the psychological need and blah, 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 blah. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to attribute too much to that, but but yeah, it, it's true. I kind of dreaded the idea of an afterlife. I, I was I was hoping that there wouldn't be because the Christian, the Catholic view of afterlife can be pretty scary. And you know, I am have not always been a perfect person. And I turned my back on religion, and I was like, wow, there's and so materialism and this sort of nihilistic view of of the world was actually very very comforting to me. I was like great. I'm not going to be judged. I just get to try to be the best person I can going forward and I'll do the best I can and then I'll be done and I'll be out of here and other things like the, the world can move on. Again, I, I, I started studying survival because it's all experiential and it's the easiest way to sort of get your foot in the door in parapsychology, at least at the time for me. And that ended up leading me to attending a, um, a summer study program in parapsychology, which was put on by the Rhine Research Center, which is based in Durham, North Carolina. And it was co-done that year with the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And I was living in California and IONS is in California. And that's where the, the class was going to be. The class was going to be at the Institute of Noetic Sciences that year. So I took a couple of weeks off work and I went and I immersed myself in parapsychology for this two-week period. And it was, it was really interesting and transformative. And I met a bunch of people. I, I got to meet people like Dean Radin and Christine Simmons Moore and Chris Rowe and, and a bunch of other. And then they had the, the Parapsychological Association meeting was in the middle of this class period. Uh, and that's where basically it's the professional organization for all the worldwide professional organization for parapsychologists. So anyone who I'd ever been reading about or read about ended up in a room and I got to sit next to them and even had the courage to talk to a couple of them. But I also talked to, I also met Julie Beischel, who at the time, I didn't know her then previously, but she was doing her postdoc at the University of Arizona studying mediumship. And I, her and I kind of hit it off with this other guy. His name is Adam Rock. He's a researcher out of Australia. And he had interest in survival. And there were a couple of other people. And we kind of made this little group of survival people because everybody else was kind of interested in other topics and uh, we kept in touch and one thing led to another and uh, I ended up moving out to Arizona and Julie ended up finishing her postdoc and 
uh, Julie and I eventually got married and the, the question became, well, what do we want to do with Julie's research? And uh, I said, uh, it was suggested to us that we start a company and start an independent research group. And so we did that and we've been doing mediumship research together since 2008. And during that time, the more studies I run and uh, the more mediums I talk to and the more people I talk to and the more data I look at, it began to convince me more and more and more of not only the existence of various types of psychic functioning, but that the, the, the explanation for a lot of these experiences is that there's probably some kind of afterlife. And while I ha- it has removed certain anxiety around death for me, it's also sort of increased some other levels of anxiety. I was thinking about this a lot lately. Like, am I happier in the belief that there's an afterlife versus not an afterlife? And I, I think I, I think I vacillate on that kind of on a daily basis. <laughs> oh, I'll take comfort in that one day and be like, oh my God, really? This is, this is going to be a thing going forward. Anyway, so I'm not, again, I, I'm not a traditional uh, researcher. I'm not, I mean, I have traditional views on these topics and, uh, um, and Julie certainly and the other researchers we work with have their own views and I don't want to speak for them. So this is, this is just me personally. Is there anyone who ever came along, did the work or anyone who came and said, I absolutely think this is not true. I mean, aside from me, <laughs> but you know, came along and said, I think this is not true. And then maybe came along on a study or investigated. And then that maybe worked with you guys and just said, this has changed my mind that you've worked with. No, because for the most part, the people that are attracted, this is hard work and it's low paying and it's difficult and it's time consuming. And most people that aren't committed to it in one way, shape or form, or at least committed to the deep understanding of it, won't commit the time. Right. So I want I don't want to say that everyone we've worked with was a believer. I hate this term, sort of believer skeptic dichotomy that it has been created. But I, I think that at least everyone we worked with has been at least open to the possibility of the phenomena and and to see where that where the research would take them. Where I think that if people were rejecting even the possibility of it, they wouldn't even waste their time on this topic. So so you is the person, I guess the answer to that question is you. Yeah, uh, me. <laughs> that makes sense. Yes. That that being said, I do often receive emails from people who are like, I didn't believe, I didn't know what to believe, I was confused. Your research has helped me. Uh, research and personal experience and other things have helped me sort of get a better sense of what's happening and and uh, you know that kind of thing. Last year, I actually ran a study called the Wimbridge Afterlife Acceptance and Validity Study or Wave Study. And the goal of that study was to understand not if people believe in an afterlife, but why they believe in in an afterlife and what it would take for them to change their minds, flip that position from either being a believer to a skeptic or a skeptic to a believer. And the two things, now there's lots of different reasons and lots of, and there's people have like some people like, Oh, I'll never change my mind to become a skeptic. And other people say, I'll never change my mind to become a believer. That's a kind of a small piece of it. The other small piece of it, relatively small piece of it is um, some sort of scientific consensus, right? If there's, if there's a big scientific consensus that says, yes, there is an afterlife, then as a skeptic, I might believe it, or there isn't an afterlife. And as a believer, I might reject it. 
But really what it came down to was personal experience. The thing that, that sort of solidified the belief in an afterlife for the most people on the believer side was because they had some sort of direct personal experience. And then on the skeptic side, the thing that they said would change their, was would be most likely to change their mind would be some kind of direct personal experience. Now, what's interesting is that the direct personal experience on the believer's side was like, I would have some belief that I had some sort of dream, some sort of visitation, blah, 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 right? On the skeptic side, it was like the dead person and would come down in full form and stand in front of me in a halo of light and tell me things that I would have, uh, right? Like it was stuff that was like so far beyond what the, it had no ecological validity, right? It's so far beyond what the phenomena actually reports, right? That or express how it expresses itself right. that I think it would be really difficult to provide people with that level of, uh, of experience. But the point is it's personal experience, right? Whatever it might be, right? And so the question becomes, how do we create reasonable personal experiences that are difficult to reject on a face value if we're trying to switch people's worldviews? But the, the interesting thing too, that I'm always find sort of confusing or, or weird or not, like, like we live in a country where depending on which survey you, you listen to 70% of the population already believes in some sort of afterlife. Right. And many of them take comfort in that belief. Right. So really all we're doing is try to serve between th- 20 and 30% of the remaining population of which some of those people will never change their minds. Right. So actually the, the position, the, that percentage of our audience is actually much lower because the people that already believe in an afterlife have had these personal experiences. They've had cultural experiences They or have it's built into their cultural backgrounds or belief systems or religions or whatever. They don't need science to tell them what to believe. Although I've noticed that some of them, when a horrible tragedy hits, you guys know I volunteer at Forever Family and the majority of guests are people who've lost children. Although that's not the only people who attend the grief retreats and conferences. But I did early on meet a few religious people who were there and I asked them, I was very curious what would bring them if they already had that hope. And most of them, you know, when they're hit with that level of tragedy, just said they needed another layer. It's one thing to sit and pray and believe when everything's good or, you know, there's normal life challenges. But when you're hit with that next level, like, that profound level of loss. Some said that they needed more than just faith. And I thought that was, you know, I'm sure it's different for each one. So I can't speak for every single religious person that comes to this, but I was surprised to find other, to find that there were religious people attending because there's always a significant amount. And I assumed everyone was going to be like a skeptical grief stricken atheist like me when I first attended. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can't speak to that specifically, but that's an interesting point. Like, sure, absolutely. People have crisis of faith all the time and and they turn to whatever resources they need to get through that. I am not a theologian and I am not an expert in religion. Uh, so I, I want to be really careful about what I say here, but it doesn't surprise me that you've had that experience. And I'm not trying to to minimize anyone who who finds themselves in this believer category or this acceptance category that they they turn a blind eye to science or they don't need science. But but my general experience is that you know those people are like oh that's cool that you're studying it, but I you know I'm already on board right. Your research is great, but I already know this stuff. Why don't why maybe study something else that I don't know about? Like you know it's 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 
from a, from a, like a, a fundraising perspective, I guess, from a, from just to be like, as a guy who runs an organization that has to pay payrolls and bills and stuff, uh, it's a kind of a tough sell, right? It's a, it's a pretty niche market for this kind of stuff, right? So we, we rely on people's who are curious and uh, who are seeking answers and also, you know, private foundation grants and, and things like that to help. I think it's getting less niche from the people I talk to. I think it didn't cross people's minds necessarily that there was a substantial research like this. Like when I start talking to people, you know, first often there's a slight eye roll. And then when I start speaking about it, the way I speak about it and giving them some of the information some people, not everybody, you know, and I feel out the situation, but I'm surprised the amount of people whose eyes light up and they say, I never would have thought something like this exists. Really? Can I ask you a question about that? So who are those people? You and I are actually, there's a fairly large age gap between both of us, right? Can I, is, is it appropriate for me to ask you how old you are? Yeah. I mean, it, people figured out my book because their dates. So I'm 33 now. Okay. So I'm 60. Okay. <laughs> so there's some significant world differences between us, right? And so are the people, so so I don't talk to a lot of 33-year-olds in my, in my normal day, right? Most of the people I interact with are a little bit closer to my age. Are the people that you're talking to a little bit younger, are they, are, from my perspective, are they are from my, are they closer to your age or my age, I guess is the, the question. I would say 90% my age. They tend to be, I mean, of course there's outliers, but they tend to be between like 20 five to like 40 in general. Yeah. And again, an outlier. And yeah, it's interesting because I was actually a little bit talking about this with my mom's friends. And I mean, it was just the level of a somewhat of an eye roll with an attempt to be polite being like, Oh, poor Liz has basically become delusional since the loss of her father. You know? I, yeah. I would say they tend to be millennial generation overall. That's really interesting. And, and it's encouraging, right? That people are opening up to the, these various possibilities and thinking about the world in different ways. Cause I think, I think once you start to go down this road of exploring a non-materialist world, it opens people up to a wide range of things, right? Not just this idea of an afterlife, but spirituality and what it means to be human and human interaction. And, and, and it opens it up in ways that people may not have been exposed to or thought about before. I also wouldn't be surprised. And I'm trying to notice how much of a difference there is, if there is since the pandemic, if there's a lot more openness to this, because in our lifetimes, and with the privilege of living where we are, obviously it's different for people who live in different places. We have never come close to seeing this level of death surrounding us. And I'm wondering how much that's going to, change this dialogue. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we definitely saw an, an uptake in emails since COVID. I think we've seen an increase in the number of downloads. Uh, people are, are downloading from of our fact sheets and informational educational documents that we put together. So yeah, I think COVID has, has sort of refocused the conversation, especially for a bunch of people that haven't experienced loss before. What would you say is the biggest most profound, if there is anything like, what the fuck thing that you have seen in your research? Oh my God, all of it, really. I mean, it's it's really difficult to put a finger, like we are showing evidence for psychic functioning, right? Regardless of afterlife stuff, right? There's evidence for some type of psychic functioning. That is in and of itself incredible because it speaks to this entire 
new way of thinking about reality, right? It's, it thinks about, it, it opens us up to this whole possibility of this non-materialist based reality that we're connected in ways that materialist reality can't even begin to touch that we maintain these relationships through space and time. That to me is just so incredibly profound and amazing. And, and I don't want to say like, what the fuck, like surprising, what the fuck, but because I'm not easily surprised, but satisfied. That's amazing. Like that's really fucking cool that that level of connections can exist in our lifetimes when we're separated in space and time and even separated through, through death. I think that is a profound finding from my perspective. Are you an advocate, a change maker, a healer, or an expander? Does your business have an important story to tell? A story agency can help you craft and share your business's story with the right audience. A story is a public relations and communications firm that develops thoughtful strategies, content, and powerful partnerships for those who are making a positive social impact, sparking reform, and promoting well-being. Founded by Allison Mahoney, an American lawyer who has spent the past decade advocating on behalf of survivors of social injustices, crimes, and civil rights violations, a story agency is not your average PR firm. Reach out to a story agency today at hello at a story, E S T O R I E agency.com or visit www.astoryagency.com and mention WTF just happened in the subject line to receive a free 30 minute consultation. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. So Mia asks, why don't evil people, dictators, child abusers, all have NDEs? If there are loved ones on the other side who want the best for us, why don't they make that happen? So evil people grow and stop causing so much harm. Okay, so I get what you're asking. Now... For people not familiar with NDEs, those are near-death experiences where someone is clinically dead and then they're resuscitated and come back reporting experiences such as seeing loved ones on the other side. They are really fascinating and good evidence of survival of consciousness in an afterlife. Dr. Bruce Grayson and Dr. Sam Parnia are some researchers to check out on this topic. You can also listen to my episode with researcher Dr. Jan Holden and an episode I had where I spoke to an NDE experiencer, Jacob Cooper. Overall, during NDEs, these people report coming back transformed, very loving, much more emotionally involved. There was, I forgot the exact story, but there was someone who always wanted to fight people and was like a very angry guy and he came back just wanting to only help and caring about people. And when people come back, they care a lot less about things like money and power and really more just about love and helping people. So in theory, a dictator with a lot of power, like say Putin, who had an NDE, 
could come back and transform the world or an abuser who hurt their family while they couldn't transform the world to the level Putin could, they certainly could transform the world for their family and loved ones. Or then you take even a meh person with tons of power, like Jeff Bezos. He could come back and transform workers' rights and environmental aspects of shipping and packaging. But, you know, none of those people have had NDEs as far as I know. So the only true, honest answer I can have is, I don't know. I've always thought the same thing and that it would be really great if this did happen. I can give some theories. I know that mediums would say that there is a purpose to life and maybe that would interfere with this person's growth and who they are supposed to be in this life and all the people's lessons they're supposed to learn who encounter these people. Others might say that Earth is supposed to be a challenge and that would take away a lot of the challenges that people are supposed to face who encounter have to deal with these difficult people. I mean, maybe. I, I can't really have an opinion on that. Um, in terms of research, people have no idea why some people who are declared clinically dead and get resuscitated have NDEs and then others don't. I can't begin to touch upon that at all. So you take it to this question, I, I can't answer it either. I mean, in terms of terrible people having NDEs and why some people do and some don't, maybe some things in this world really are just completely random. Maybe, maybe not. There are just so many ways to look at this from the purely random all the way to that there is some grand plan and role we are all supposed to play for our highest growth to many possibilities or theories in between those two. Yeah, I really wish these people would all have NDEs too. I mean, actually, it would probably be amazing if everyone had one. But then, you know, if there is a plan to all of this, if we were supposed to know and be that and I'm using air quotes here, enlightened, we would all be able to remember and know the other side and the NDE lessons without having to have that bodily trauma of an NDE where we almost died or were injured. So anyway, I wonder the same thing. I really have no valid answer beyond just theorizing, but really good question. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Thank you so much for all you do. It's just amazing. And I guess lastly, where can everyone find you? Oh, well, thank you. And thanks for having me on today. All of our stuff is online. Our, our website is our main hub. So you can go to windbridge.org 
and you can get access to our peer-reviewed papers. Many of them are available for download. Sometimes publishers put them behind paywalls because that's the way scientific publishing works. But we, we make free educational materials based on all of our research. So there's fact sheets and videos and blog posts and stuff like that that you can go and learn get more information about the research. You can dive in and read the papers or you can read these high-level overviews wherever you are. There's a cool feature on our site that I want to push. It's called Find Your Path or Pick Your Path. And it's uh, it's available from the top menu. And if you if you scroll over that, you'll see we've we've separated the content out into categories. So there's for the curious and for researchers and for clinicians and for practitioners. And we try to to curate the information in a way that's relevant to those audiences because there is a lot of information on the site. So check that out or, you know, just roam around. We don't want to, you know, I'm not going to, if you're a practitioner, but you want to know what the researchers are doing, jump over there and check it out. You're not like locked out of it or anything, but it's just a way to help organize the information based on people's interests. And I would encourage you while you're there to sign up to our email list because that's really the main way we communicate with the public is through our website and, and our email list. We do do some social media but we're not as good as keeping up with that. But we do a monthly email list that uh, talks about the latest research findings, calls for participation in various projects, all that stuff. I do, again, just want to iterate that our mediumship certification and testing program is closed and we're not, uh, we're not taking uh, new applications for that program. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore, or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.